Hello, it's Jack Tudor here of Attention Magazine. Welcome to Crucial Listening, the podcast where I speak with musicians and sound artists about three albums that are important to them. My guest this time is Jessica Ecomano, a French-born, Berlin-based electronic music artist whose new album Multivocal is out tomorrow at the time I record this, 22nd of November 2019 on Important Records. And it's a record I was really drawn to as soon as the press release came through, which described the record thusly. Steady pulses with one millisecond difference in tempo start beating together, then slowly phase organically and progress into ever-changing rhythmic patterns until they finally return to unison. There's two pieces on multivocal and they both adhere to this premise, which sounds very simple and almost academic. But the experience of listening itself is completely unfathomable, indescribable. I'll try anyway. Um, It really highlights how just the experience of listening impresses its own emphasis and expectations upon the event. It's also, to my mind, a study of impermanence. The changes in tempo happen so slowly that it feels repetitious over the course of like two or three repeats, like you're hearing the same pattern over and over again. But by the say like the fifth or sixth repeat of the pattern, you realize that things are sliding into a new configuration. Suddenly you start to hear one pitch very distinctly and very brightly, like it's the start of the sentence, like the drop in point of the sentence. And you don't know whether your brain is starting to emphasize this by itself, simply because where it's appearing in that stereo space, or whether Jessica is applying some modulation from the back end in order to bring that pitch forth. You start really questioning the mechanics of that ballet between listener and listening object. I absolutely love this record. It's worth listening to on headphones. It's worth blasting through your house. As Jessica says, it's worth playing loud as well, however you do it. And I would thoroughly recommend if you are UK-based like me, and even better if you're in the vicinity of London, Jessica is going to be playing a show at Eclectic on the 28th of November. She even says that the best way to hear her music is live. She often uses a quadraphonic setup. So... If you're free and, I mean, if you're tantalised by the sample of this record, then by all means go ahead and go to that show and pick up the album as well. So you can find out more information about Jessica at her website, jessicaecomano.com. Also, I'll have links at attentionmagazine.co.uk forward slash crucial listening. I had a lovely conversation with Jessica. This was really an enjoyable one. And obviously, as you may know, if you're a regular listener, it's been a while. I've been off to have a son. He's born now. He's absolutely wonderful, eternally beautiful. I love hanging out with him. It does mean that the schedule of Crucial Listening is going to be more sporadic and spontaneous. I'll record them and upload them as I do them. I still love doing this podcast and I'm really adamant that it still plays a role in my life. Um, Thank you very much for your patience while I've been away Learning how to be a dad really is the best thing. Okay, that's it. On with the podcast, this wonderful conversation with Jessica Ekomana.
Hello, Jessica. Welcome to Crucial Listening. Hi, Jack. Thanks for inviting me. Not at all. Thanks for coming on. So before we get to your three important records that you brought to the table, uh, I wanted to ask you about your new album, which is coming out this month called Multivocals, coming out on Important. Uh, I've been loving listening to it over the past few weeks. It's been one of those obsessive listens for me. Um, I understand that the record was recorded live at Ars Electronica. 2018 at uh, the event Sonatas of Sleepless. Uh, what what can you tell me about your memories of that event um, and also how multivocal ties in to the themes of that event as well? Uh, so this event was curated by Chuli Cheng. She invited me uh, there and uh, I thought it was a good occasion because I was um, I was already interested to work with format that were a little bit more long durational, so to say. It's not exactly long durational, actually, according to the definition, I guess. But um, I'm also I've been working a lot since a while with this notion of uh, kind of static situation, so to say, or static music. Um, and I think this is maybe inherited from the fact that I also did a few sound installation. So I'm also really interested to kind of try to generate the illusion of motion through static static elements, static separates elements. Uh, so it was a good uh, occasion for me to kind of push it beyond maybe, because it was not a proper concert situation. I had two hours to play and people would lay in and uh, hopefully sleep. So I thought it would be a good uh, occasion to test something in a setting where people maybe have other expectation than my usual live sets because when i play live usually i play more half an hour and um, it's a little bit different at the moment so it's really a specific project for this specific context so and also um, i have to say that this project is quadraphonic so it was also quite a challenge to it's always a challenge for me to find a way to reproduce this experience in stereo so uh, this is why I chose uh, the live recording, uh, because it was the best option than trying to emulate something in the studio. Basically, it's the recording of the moment as well in time. Yeah. So how did you find that experience of playing for over a longer duration? I mean, I guess it was, must have been quite interesting to be playing to an audience which is settling down for sleep. That's got its own uh, qualities to it as well. But how did you find that opportunity to play over those longer duration well actually it was interesting because even though i said that the audience would have different expectation actually they were expecting me to play a concert as i usually do right and uh, this this music is a little bit about uh, this expectation and the fact that this music is really developing really slowly so at some point you really um, give up this expectation there's no drastic changing or changes sorry or different movements in there uh, if you know what I mean. Yes. And, uh, so it was interesting to see them uh, expecting drastic changes in the like in the usual concert setting, and then kind of giving up these expectations and just being in the moment, laying down and waiting, hearing the time passing, so to say. Um, <laughs> so I kind of enjoyed some. Um, I wouldn't say it was a disappointment, but you just have to readjust your expectations. Yes. It was an interesting uh, experience 
to see. <laughs> because a lot of things are also, I mean, I was mainly monitoring what is happening. I, I didn't change, I don't change so much in the parameter. It's kind of going by itself. So also I'm not really performing in the same time, even though I'm on the stage. So you also have to remanage this expectation as well. Yeah, so in terms of the piece itself, so as I've seen in the description of the record, it's centered on steady pulses with one millisecond difference in tempo that start beating together and then phase out and then unify at the end. So how did you come to arrive at this for a notion of a record? I mean, was it something that you had conceptually that you were like, I want to see how that plays out in sound? Or is this a process that you came to by kind of dabbling and improvising and finally coming up with that concept? First, the idea was triggered actually by this specific piece by uh, Ligeti. Um, I don't know if you're a bit familiar with his work. Actually, we are going to talk about it. <laughs> yeah, but, slightly, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, he has this uh, piece where he's using metronome. I think it's 100 metronomes or something like that. And uh, it's one of his only pieces that is not less about really music, so to say. And the principle is that he has these different metronomes with different tempos, and they start, um, the start is really chaotic, and the end of the piece is where you just have one metronome left uh, ticking. And uh, Ligeti is someone that was also really interested in um, working with really complex rhythmical structure. And so I was wondering starting with this idea if it would be possible to, in a way, translate it to make it a little bit more musical. So this was this was the trigger. And so, of course, Faze, uh, uh, Stivage is someone that is known to work with this a lot. Uh, but this was not so much an inspiration for me, but for sure this is someone that uh, uses this effect a lot. And uh, what I find interesting there, I also did another piece that is not on the album, but this was a commission from a radio in um, Germany and from also Savvy Contemporary um, Art Place here. Uh, I also use the same principle with another tuning, so there's kind of a third piece that is completing that. And what I find interesting is that the development is really slow, so in a way you have the impression to listen to the same thing, but then it's always changing a little bit, so it's kind of playing with your memory as well. Mm. And, but for example, if you would arrive at the beginning and you leave the room and then you come back 10 minutes after, it's totally different. Um, so I like that there's these different levels of music perception, so to say. Or you really, because it evolves so slow, I think you become, in a way, really attentive yes. to the little changes. But it could also be something that can be in the background, so to say, because I also had this image of a clock, for example where you have this really um, uh, regular ticking in the background so that at some point you almost don't notice it anymore. But when it disappears, you do notice it. I, I like this kind of effect yes. as well. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's really interesting to read in the description of the record about the inspiration of, say, certain facets of psychology, so gestalt psychology and also multi-stable perception as well. So the mm -hmm. influence as much being about the experiencer as it is about the experience. I mean, I had, I've had incredible experiences listening to this album and second guessing what I am imposing on the experience through 
my modulations and attention just focusing on the same thing for a long period of time and what you are actually doing at certain mm-hmm. points i was thinking well that tone's definitely got louder something is being adjusted here like in terms of the positioning of things in the stereo spectrum but i could never be sure i mean maybe you can dispel the confusion for me are you just adjusting the tempo of the pitches or is there other stuff going on as well or am i imposing that through my own experience of these pieces well there is slight variation not really in the pitch but um maybe a little bit in the quality of the sound and also in the amplification of it so sometimes they are a little softer or a little bit louder but the main change is or what was interesting in there is that you have the same material you have the same pitches or series of notes and you have the same rhythm yes but yes. what you hear is the change of relationships between them which makes you uh give you the impression that the the, the music is changing so to say so it's mainly a change in relationship hmm. and then yes uh, you were talking about the the text and the influence so uh one influence is also this idea of trends uh, that i really like as well um because a lot of uh the time to get in this state of trends, if you have music, um, the, the, the music that is used is often really minimalistic as well. You have a lot of repetition and uh, um, it has to do a little bit with hypnosis in a way, maybe. No? Mm. Certainly for me, what's been fascinating is to kind of ponder this piece within the idea of impermanence as well. It feels so strange to be listening to something which essentially adheres to one state as you say static concept and yet everything Mm -hmm. about it is complicated and the the, you know there's so much movement in it and in some ways because you're drawn to focus on just one static principle everything feels so much more uh, um, overwhelming in terms of the amount of material that you're trying to ingest all at once um i mean where where is it that you what, what is it that interests you about working with these uh, ideas around perception and the way that people perceive uh, the piece as opposed to just, you know, constructing the music itself. Why are you interested in how people are receiving the piece and the kind of perceptual phenomena phenomena that take place? Um, As I was saying or mentioning before, it's also related to my interest for trance and alternate state of consciousness, I would say. Yeah. Um, I have different um, relationship to trance, I think. Trance was playing a bit a role in... I know it from my family, for example, in some moment in the church. I mean, I'm not religious, but uh, this is something important in one side of my family. And then there are these moments uh, in African church where you have trance moments. And then I always saw it as some, this moment where your rational mind is kind of uh, dissolving. And it's a kind of a way to um, shut yourself down or cut yourself from your problems in your daily life. Mm. Or maybe the oppressions that are going on, the dysfunctions that you have then. And uh, also it's kind of this ideal of your body and your mind being just one, or maybe you are just a body, I don't know. Mm. But uh, I'm interested in this moment where maybe the rational mind, even though this is a really conceptual and really rational uh, concept, (laughs) (laughs) the the intended effect is uh, to get in this state, in a way. But by the way, this is also some kind of effect that people research if they go to a club, for example, in, in 
Berlin, where you have a lot of minimal techno. This is also a kind of strength, strength state that is uh, uh, sick after, I think. Yes. Um, so I think, yeah, and also... I think on a maybe metaphorical level, what is what I find interesting there is that you have a situation where you feel like you understand everything what is going on, but in fact there is many ways of interpreting the same situation depending on your perspective. And this I find it an interesting concept as well. And in this um, particular uh, setting of this event for these two pieces, I really uh, stretch the concept to the most extreme. So you hear all the cycle from the beginning to the end. I mean, I, the end of the piece is the beginning of the piece, basically. Yes. So you're coming back to where you came from. You, you went nowhere. <laughs> I also like this. <laughs> Um, but for example, to give you an idea, if I play a live concert in a more usual setting, then I would use this um, this uh, structure that I built in Max MSP as a way to generate complex rhythm. So I play it in another way. I would take some of the impulses out, uh, take some in at some moment, so that the music feels a little bit more changing or lively. There is more changes. Hmm. So you can use this 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 uh, structure I built in different ways. Yeah, that was going to be my other question, actually, which is, do you feel like there's more room for exploration within this general premise that you've looked into on multivocal? Yes, <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, as I mentioned also before, I did another version that is a little bit faster and the, the, the tuning is also different. And I think the way you perceive what is going on is um, because it's also faster, um, your perception of the piece will be different, I think. And also, yeah, I, so I built this tool that I think I can use live in different way also to um, have more changing rhythm and maybe to generate rhythm that I would not be able to write by myself, you know, yeah. if you see it in a link with not music notation, traditional music notations, etc., I would probably not be able to write those rhythms. Yes. So they are generated and changing all the time. So you don't have a permanent 4-4 four, four pulse, for example, or you don't have this kind of fixed tempo. Yeah. yeah. Because there are moments actually listening to multivocal where you can almost that everything aligns in a way where it slips into kind of a conventional rhythm for like a moment. And yes. then there's a almost, I think there's a part of my brain which has been, you know, brought up on pop music, which almost feels like a slight frustration as that <laughs> rhythm starts to slip away from you again and you're back out into the wilderness. It's quite, yes. it's quite lovely as well. Um, exactly. There's nothing you can hold on for too long. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, Jessica, let's go on to your important records. Um, so before we actually get to the records themselves, one question I like to ask is how you thought about the term important when you came up with your selection of albums. So was there a particular way in which you interpreted the term important in order to come up with the list of records that you did? Uh, yes. So I chose three records that I thought were important to me um, let's say in my formative years, I don't know if you say it like this in English. Yes, absolutely. So maybe bef before my 20s or something like this, uh, um, records that left a big impression on me musically and that I think 
you can maybe still find the, the, the influence in what I do today in there in some way, directly or not. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, great. Well, let's start with um, whichever record you like, whichever one you want to kick off with. So if you could tell me the name of it and a little bit about why it's important to you as well. Well, we talked a little bit about Ligeti already, so we could start with this one. Perfect. So that's works for piano, is it? Yes. Great. Why is this one important to you, Jessica? <laughs> so I, when I was growing up in France, I learned piano for a bit. And I was always getting a little bit frustrate, frustrated by the repertoire that uh, my teacher would give to me. Or it felt like everybody was mostly wanting to play Mozart, this kind of thing. And I really wanted to play things, or I was interested in people that were experimenting or playing things that would be more contemporary. Mm. And uh, one day my teacher proposed me this uh, this this uh, work from Ligeti and he brought the CD and then I listened to it I went back home and I listened to it and then I thought okay that's it I'm giving up piano because this person said everything which <laughs> really made a big big impression on me uh, because of the, the, the complexity of the music especially the first piece I forgot the, the name uh, Disorder or something like this I forgot the name but um, I mean especially this version by uh, Pierre Laurent Aymar I think is my my favorite version of his pieces as well mm. um, and I think what I like in this album as well is that you have one part where you have the whole um, Musica Ricercata series from him. And what I like in those pieces is that basically Ligeti set himself a concept for each piece, or he has a concept for the whole uh, series of pieces, but also for each piece is always adding one note. And I like this idea of having limitations, setting yourself limitation to as a way to trigger your composition or push it forward. Mm. Um, especially the first piece of Musica Ricercata is just one note, I think. No, two notes. And the second note is just playing it once at the very end. <laughs> so, <laughs> and he made a piece that is really complex already, just working with rhythm and, and, and one note, you know? Yeah. So this is really inspiring, I find. And also I think Ligeti as a, as a composer, I like him because he's really a playful person and actually he has really a sense of humor that you can actually hear in his pieces, I think. And uh, from what I could read from him or when I saw interview, also I liked that he had this approach where he was saying that uh, he doesn't necessarily start with theory, but he, he dreams his pieces sometime or he sees them in, in his head and uh, he's making a story in his hands. Wow. And then the music theory just come at the end. So to help him uh, formalizing it. And I like this approach also that is not 100% rational rational yes yeah you said so you were craving something a little less conventional in your piano repertoire and this came along um did you like it straight away when you heard it yes you did definitely. <laughs> yes definitely also because i think for me this music is a good balance between uh it's not totally deconstructed it's not totally atonal or you still have structure that you know there so it's kind of making a balance between the traditional um, 
music structures you know and something else or trying to question the structure or into yeah uh, pushing them forward yeah it's like that you're still trying to communicate a little bit with the audience and not uh destroy every structure yes yes because at that point it's kind of is improvisation or it nullifies the point in doing anything i guess if you're not applying some degree of form to what you're presenting but um i always find it really interesting listening to these pieces and even during those moments where it's quite chaotic sometimes my brain will hang on to one quite jaunty and what feels like quite an emotionally led rhythm or something that has a certain swing to it even at some points in his Mm -hmm. repertoire it's interesting um so so when this was presented to you from your piano teacher did you start learning these pieces as well uh, I tried playing Musica Isercata, but uh, yeah, I mean, I didn't go to a conservatory or something like this. It was more a small music school in the village, so right. I was not that serious, and uh, my level is not that high, and I, I stopped soon after this because, uh, yeah, I thought... Everything has been said, so I need to move on. <laughs> and also, I mean, I have to say, it's not no, it's not really only this. It's also because in the end, I don't feel like I'm really an interpret. I really wanted to bring some of my... I felt this urge to bring my own musical ideas. And I'm not so much into... I mean, I really enjoy seeing people that are really virtuos, virtuosic yes. with their instrument, but it, I'm not like this... Right. Uh, I don't enjoy working toward this uh, as an interpret. So, yeah, this is why at some point I just moved on to something else. But, um, yeah. Yeah. Where did it take you then from if Leggetti showed you that your own journey with the piano was coming to an end? Where was your next step? Like, how did you progress from there? Well, uh, one thing also with Ligeti that you can hear is that uh, you also work with electronic music. Right, yeah. So yeah. I think you can also hear it in those piano pieces, actually, because I feel like it's someone that is actually working with sound in the end. So it doesn't treat the piano as a piano in a traditional way. Uh, it's working with the sound of the piano, I think. And so at that time, I was not making music, actually. I started when I moved to Berlin. Uh, although I always had interest for music, I was really interested in electronic music, but I think I was not in the right environment that would allow me to experiment with this. So to answer your question in the end, I think it led me to work with sound synthesis, basically, and electronic music. You mentioned, actually, that Pierre's interpretation of these pieces is your favourite. Is there something in particular about what Pierre's bringing to this set of pieces that makes it stand out for you well i think maybe there's a little bit of a sentiment some sentimental aspect when i say this because the first interpretation of them i heard is this one right yes. and uh, when we talk about habits of listening well i got attached to this uh, version of them <laughs> um, but i think he's also um, I'm not 100% sure about this, but I think he might have worked with him in a way. And it feels like uh, it's the interpretation of it that I heard that is the most, uh, the clearest in a way. Right. I mean, I did read actually, in fact, it sounds like Ligeti started writing 
pieces with Pierre's playing style in mind almost. So there was a <laughs> kind of yes. feedback loop going on, right? Yes. Okay. Then this would explain. Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, and have you seen his pieces performed live ever? Uh, no, I don't think so. Unfortunately. Yeah. I wish. I wish I could, but I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, and is it a record that you still listen to nowadays? Yes, definitely. Um, it's not something that I would listen every day when I'm cooking or something like this because <laughs> it demands a lot of attention. Yeah. And uh, it's quite heavy. But uh, yes, this is definitely an album that I would definitely uh, regularly come back to. Let's go on to your second record now, Jessica. Um, if you could give me the name of it as before and uh, a little bit about why it's important to you as well. Yes. Uh, which was the second one? that I, yeah, It was, uh, I think... Um, no, let's talk about Missy Elliott. I think it's a good transition. From <laughs> Missy Elliott, actually. Great. Yeah. yeah, go for it. Yeah. Um, so I chose this album because uh, it was also an album that I was listening to a lot when I was uh, at that time. Uh, I still remember, the, especially looking at the cover. I mean, it's not that I like every single uh, track in this album or also the cover. It's not especially that I like it, but I think what I like about Missy Elliott is um, how much she dare to be different. Mm. Um, and also because at the time it was really inspiring to see a woman producing her own music. Yes. Um, and I think especially at that time, I think it's still the time where she was working with Timbaland and uh, she, sometimes some of these tracks I find are really strange. There's some really, there's a, there's a kind of pop structure or hip hop structure that you know, and then she's adding these other elements that makes it really clever. I really like this kind of tension between this is what we talked about before, but this be trying to kind of deconstruct these structures that you know really well, but still keeping them at the same time. And um, what I like as well is that there's different level of listening to it. For example, there's this uh, one track, I think it's the track called What You're Gonna Do with Timbaland. And for example, in there, if you search for what the sample is, then it leads you to felicity, colonial mentality. And then from there on, uh, this is this is how I was listening to music at the time, trying to go deeper, deeper every time. It leads me to another artist, and then it leads you deeper uh, into some other themes. And uh, this was my only way to really discover uh, new music at the time also, because where I was, there were no record shop or people that were really into experimental music. So I would often search for uh, the references of the popular artists I knew, 
um, and then it was the time where we could have our first personal computer as well. So from there on, I would research other artists, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what I like also about her is that she's really letting her imagination run wild. I mean, a lot of the the, the music videos are also crazy. Um, and for me, it's someone like Bjork, for example, who she's really a pop star, but then in the same time, she keeps true to herself. Um, there's not many people like her, I think, around, and she would deserve more credit. I think she's getting a little bit more credit now, but she really deserves more credit as a as a producer. Yeah, yeah. It is, it's absolutely fascinates me when you get people like that, because there are as i think you've said there are so many ways to listen to the record and it can serve as something that sounds good listening to idly on the radio like there's enough of a vivid melody to come out and hit you straight in the face and you like it straight away uh, but then you can as it sounds like you've done get quite surgical with it and get right up inside it and be like you know blimey there's a lot of complicated things going on right here um, yes. So how old were you when you first discovered Miss E So Addictive? Uh, oh, was I? Which year was that? It was 2001, I think. So it means I was I was 11 or 12. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you, you mentioned you were like diving inside. Um, the record by like checking references and who was featured and who was sampled and uh, what else were you listening to around this time uh really different things i mean actually this came out in 2001 but i might have discovered it a little bit later right and uh, i think at that time because i was still young and then experimental music was not really something that people would talk about around me or that was really known mm. then you didn't need to try to be cool to show off that you were listening to this or that so i was really mixing things and for example i really loved the destiny's child a lot i still i still like them mm. i think some of the production are really good uh, but then in the same time, I would listen to Ligeti or I would listen to, I don't know, Jimi Hendrix or whatever, every type of music. I think I was at that time where I would really, uh, my goal was to listen as much music as possible. Uh, ideally, all the music that has ever been produced in the world ever. <laughs> <laughs> to really understand and map everything and know all this relates to what, etc. Because I really, I was really into trying to understand as much different languages as possible. And uh, maybe one thing that I didn't mention with Miss Elliot or with this type of music, what I like is really the rhythm. I work a lot with rhythm as well. And I think rhythm is something that um, that talks to everybody and, and talks to your body as well. And for example, for people that don't necessarily have a musical education, I think they would still understand rhythm. It's really something accessible to everybody. Yes. And when I say it, so it, it speaks to your body, is that a lot of the time when people hear rhythm, or when I play even abstract rhythm in my live show, some people start to move. Some people even started to rave sometimes. <laughs> uh, and this, I really like it when you have this kind of uh, reaction to the music. Yeah. Does that mean that volume is an important aspect of when you perform live? Yes. Definitely. I try to play always as loud as possible. That's always what I say the, to the sound engineer. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, because I think there is something also in your perception of sound when you know, when you can feel it uh, physically, no? 
when you yes. can see the presence of sounds. It totally changes your perception of it. And uh, in this way, even if I do, let's say, experimental electronic music or something like this, it's I don't... Um, even if I listen to some of the electroacoustic musicians, for example, I don't feel like what I do necessarily belong there. And I prefer to play in situation or in concert where people are standing, for example, rather than sitting and really listening. Yeah, because I prefer when people are moved in this way rather than trying to um, analyze the music too much. How does that figure into, I mean, we're returning to multivocal a bit here, but I'm very interested in what does that mean for when you put together a, a record? Because I guess you must then be releasing the music to a domain in which people can listen as they like. I mean, is there a way in which you approached doing the record in the knowledge that you, you knew you were going to be relinquishing that control of being able to make people feel it with their body. Like suddenly there are people kind of approaching it in an analytical way. Did that factor into how you thought about putting the record together? Um, well, as you say, it's difficult to control how people are going to listen to something. So even live, actually, I don't look for control of people. It's right. just that I know you can influence a little bit the way people are going to perceive it. Yes. So you know that you have this possibility at least to take away the chairs and this would change something in the way they relate to the music. Um, otherwise, I thought about it a bit. Actually, I considered for a bit to write on the album that it should be listened to loud. Mm. Uh, I didn't do it in the end. But I think it's something that uh, there's no set solution. Actually, it's something that I'm also looking forward to experiment with a little bit because so far I work mostly live. So the recorded format is something that I need to... Um, I'm curious to see how far I can stretch it. Do you have other recorded works in the, in the work at the moment? I have a few recorded pieces, like for example, this commission that I was talking about uh, for this radio in Germany and for Savvy Contemporary. Uh, I record some of my pieces sometime, but um, they are not yet ready to be on the record and definitely i have a lot of uh, things uh, that i play live that people didn't hear but right. are not accessible online and this i'm looking forward to uh, find a way to put it together for a record and this would probably go what i'm playing live now will probably go on the next one and uh, it's quite different from what is on multivocal in the sense that this is um, multivocal was quite extreme in terms of concept. It's really conceptual based. Yes. Uh, and concept is still important for me to guide me for composing. But what I do live is uh, less extreme conceptually, maybe, or or it it draws from this. I use what I learned from this to see how I can stretch my music. Yeah. Interesting. And you work in Max, don't you? Max MSP? Yes. Yeah. So does that lend itself to both ways of operating in the sense that is it easier to be, say, like totally conceptual in Max than it is to be, I don't know, more intuitively driven? Or does Max lend itself well to channeling both of those desires? Yes, I think definitely one reason why I tend to go in that conceptual direction is because Max allows this. Uh, I think it totally the, the architecture of the software you're using to, can totally influence the the final form of the music you are making, 
And for example, the big difference in Max with uh, Ableton or something like this, you don't have this timeline of this idea of the timeline. So everything is more about events in a way. And you can also decide how your tool is working. So you build your own instruments every time. You build your own systems. Mm. Um, and this, I find it really, really interesting. Yes, this is really triggering a lot of inspiration for my composition. And um, I just wanted to mention also, because talking about Max and sound synthesis, it made me feel about Missy Elliott as well. What I like with her is that I wouldn't be surprised if she would have this kind of experiment <laughs> in her music as well. Because I think there's a lot about interesting thing with sound synthesis going on in there as well. Um, this kind of led me there at the same time as Ligeti. Wow. Um, and thank you bringing it for bringing it back to Missy Elliott as well I was trying to figure out a clever way to do that but you uh, (laughs) did my job for me (laughs) Um, do you have a favorite track on that Missy Elliott record I don't have one favorite track I would say that maybe at the time uh, something like Get Your Freak On or When Minute Man was playing a lot so I was definitely really uh, this definitely stayed in my mind and maybe also thinking of one minute man that makes me think that also what I like about her is that she has also this theme in her songs that were really not so common at least at the time about female sexuality etc really free a really different way of talking about the woman in this environment that I like as well yeah yeah she's kind of putting her terms out there right in terms of yes. yeah um I, I mean I couldn't believe that when I've heard one minute man um, I didn't know that that was the song, but I've heard that so much just on the radio and stuff. Um, it's amazing. These songs are just kind of in my consciousness without me ever <laughs> listening directly to a Missy Elliott record, which is amazing. Um, yeah. Did you just, do, do you remember how you first like discovered it? Was it on the radio or, you know, was it just playing a lot in the ether at that time? Hmm. Yeah, that must have been on the radio because the radio and the TV were my main source of... I didn't know exactly where I was to find music because as I was mentioning, there were no record shop where I was or interesting ones. Yeah. Uh, but it was also the time of the personal computer. So then when I figured out how internet works, then I was always on this review website and it was also the time of email and uh, downloading music, etc. So I took advantage of this. <laughs> Uh, also, uh, yeah, actually, there were also in the city next to mine, there were a public library with a lot of CDs where I would go and I would every every week, uh, okay, this week I'm going through the jazz uh, section and then this week I'm going through the metal one or this was also another source uh, of programming music. That sounds like the most exciting time. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah where well, you're still open, you don't... Um, because maybe your taste is not fully formed yet, so you're really open to anything and any kind of experimentation, you know, is interesting. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you talk about this as your formative years. I mean, as you say, you're open to everything. You, you, you don't have that framework of experience and preference to sort of fit things into. I mean, do you think that you're... I, I mean, are you still listening to records that you were considered to be formative in the sense that you still discovering new music that's forming how you think about music? Uh, yes, definitely. I mean, this maybe happens less often than at the time, mm. of course. Um, 
Because I think, I mean, I think I'm still open, but at this time, at least you're less judgmental and you are less likely to say things like, oh, I've heard it already, etc. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but yeah, I mean, for example, if I would cite a record that is more recent that I really liked, it was uh, Multistability from Mark Fell. Yes, yes, wonderful record. Yes, exactly. This was really impactful uh, record. Uh, but I guess it influenced me in another way because now I'm maybe more aware of what I like, who I am, etc. For example, if we continue talking about rhythm, this this album from Mark Fell was really, really helped me to think about rhythm outside of the usual um, regular pulse. Uh, yeah. Yes. Sounds like yes. a dropped ping pong ball or something, doesn't it? A lot of the time. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you meant you may have already answered this, I think, in a roundabout way, but you talk about these three records informing uh, you as a you know someone who works with music. What is it about Missy Elliott in particular that you think has fed into your personal direction as someone working with sound? Well, I think, as I mentioned before, there's something about her just as a person and being this woman producing music and really uh, being herself that I like, that I find really inspiring. And uh, that's good sometimes, to, especially when you're long, young, to have people to look up to that show you that it's possible to do this. And also, I think, I'm, even though what I do is quite conceptual and uh, experimental, etc., I'm still interested in uh, popular culture. Uh, and this is something, actually, that uh, maybe in the future I would be interested to to discover a little bit more, working with someone that is maybe singing or working with this pop music format is still something that uh, I could explore, I think. And uh, also, when I work with rhythm, you might not hear it, but uh, also this kind of hip-hop rhythm are one of the many influences that I think about uh, when I think about rhythm that are uh, affecting me. I did see an interview you did, actually, where someone asked who you'd like to collaborate with. And you said Missy Elliott. What, oh, yeah. What would that look like in your head? <laughs> uh I don't know. I like to let myself being surprised because sometimes you have too much expectation, set expectations of people and things, and uh, it could be disappointing. But uh, no, I think it would be really interesting to add a little bit more of uh, those, this sound synthesis side that I'm working with in the realm of hip hop or popular music, uh, working with different software or different sound synthesis technique. Would yes. be something really interesting, uh, and to try to fit it or in this beat direction uh, or stretch it as much as possible. Yeah. Let's go to your final record, Jessica, if you could give me the name of it and a bit about why it's important to you. So that was uh, Alvanoto Xerox Volume 2, I think? Yes. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so this record, I, or this project, I discovered it when also I was still living in France, and I think I, oh, what was I? I think I was more 18 or something like this. Um, so there's, there's this city next to my village, a city called Tours, where there is one place where maybe once a year you can see one day of more experimental electronic music. And they invited Alvanotto, actually, which was something quite, was quite something to bring an international artist there. And I remember it was the first time I was seeing this kind of thing uh, in terms of audiovisual experience, uh, and in terms of the music that was being played, it was a new approach. So that was a really strong uh, emotional experience. And uh, I think in the way it relates to me today, when I dig a little bit more into this, uh, into Raston Autumn and their aesthetic, etc., actually, I think it's one of the most exotic experience I had in a way. Because this this kind of really strict German engineer type of uh, of uh, aesthetic was really foreign to me. It was the first I was hearing about people that are really just into the plain technique, the technology behind uh, what they are doing, and really emphasizing this. Yes. Because usually, I I mean, if you look at uh, I don't know in French electroacoustic music or things like this, it's more there's always a little bit of poetry behind, no? It's right. always a little about something else. Um, so I was used to this more. Um, and I think I mean I still don't have this perspective of the engineer. I'm not so much into uh, fetishizing gears, etc. But I think that. Uh, dichotomy between what I was hearing and the way people were talking about things was interesting because I realized that this is I like this, the product, but uh, this is not my perspective on what is going on um, so maybe that helped me discover that I was not this uh, you know what I mean? Yeah, it is interesting because I think about, and as you say, and I think a lot of people have had this similar experience to you, I certainly did, when you discover the Rastanoton crop of artists, and it's so incredibly vivid and its own thing that it becomes a portal in itself to a way of comprehending sound. And there's certainly a part of me which resonates with that way of perceiving sound, which saw the description of your record and that bit lit up the fact that there's such a precise and completely uncomplicated premise beneath it all but certainly as you say i think the actual listening experience pulls in a lot more different directions it doesn't feel like it's got right angles in it like it you know the rest of the note stuff often does you know yes. like roger Cater or something like that yes i mean also, in the case of this particular project, I chose to describe the, 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 the concept so exactly because it's really specific. Yes. Uh, in a way, and it's not uh, probably the next record I would do would be a lot less conceptual, and then you don't need that text behind. But I thought this could maybe because we were talking about you were talking about controlling people before. It's not that I want to control, but it could be nice to give a direction of listening to it. Um, I think, or at least have this possibility. Totally, yeah. Um, with the Alvanoto gig that you went to, so what what kind of stuff was he playing at that gig? 
what yeah, I know he does like a whole host of different stuff. What was his material like? Well, he was playing Xerox Volume Two. Actually. Oh wow! Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, amazing! So yeah, yeah this is why I chose this album as well because then I bought it afterward and uh, yeah. yeah. So, so this was his project. project. Again, did you like it straight away when you heard it? Yes. Yes. I mean, also because it's different if you see it live. I don't know how I would have perceived it if I would have uh, just listened to the album, if I would have had such a strong impression. But seeing it live with this, uh, uh, having this audiovisual experience uh, was definitely helped to convey this strong impression. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned actually that you... Uh, there weren't people talking about experimental music when you were growing up. I mean, when you were going to gigs like this, were you going alone or did you have some other people as well who were intrigued in the same way that you were, that you were going with? Or uh, Well, I found one friend to bring there, but this friend was not especially, this person was just open, but uh, not especially into experimental music. I was always a little bit the one listening to weird stuff. So that was more of my personal obsession. Um, yeah, so I, I wish I could have uh, shared it more, but then at the same time it was not so much a problem in the end because because it was the time of personal computers, so you, can, you have forums, you have other type of uh, way of reaching this uh, information. No? Yeah, that, so that was the story for me, is that at school there was no one... Or I felt at least I wasn't running into anyone that I could talk about all the bands that I was coming across and, you know, get really excited about them. So I went headfirst into forums in a big way. That was like, you know, a couple of hours a night just chatting to people across the world about all this music that I loved. Did, mm -hmm. did your story look similar or how deeply did you dive into forums and stuff like that? Well, I was just looking. I never participated in I think I was too shy, even if this was a virtual platform. <laughs> so I never chatted with other people. I was just watching the comments. Also because maybe I felt like I, I don't... I think it's this thing about certain type of culture where you feel like some people feel more... Um, what is the name for this? Uh, more in power than others to have opinions and uh, they feel like they... they I didn't feel like this culture necessarily belonged to it. And, right. uh, for example, even if I was interested to make actually electronic music, I wasn't sure I would be able to do it in a way because I felt like you need to, maybe it's another culture and I can't, I don't have the right to do that. Right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, maybe another thing also is that even if you could have one person from time to time that you could talk to about certain more obscure thing. I always felt that people were a little bit, um, uh, how to say that, um, dogmatic about things. So for example, you know, I'm, even if I'm really into some experimental stuff, I also find that uh, what Missy Elliott does is great and there's also experimental elements in there. But I would also not only listen to music from Europe or something like this, and it was hard to find people that are open to any kind, any type of music, even on the forums. Yes. In fact, the forums can kind of harden the edges a bit sometimes, I found. Um, people can get a little bit spiteful and a little bit, you know, um, exaggerate their opinions to sort of push back against something that almost almost reaffirm your identity as an experimental music listener by saying what yes. you don't like, you know. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so with the 
Alvin Noto record. Do you like any other of his records as well? Um, I presume the rest of the Xerox series as well? Uh, this is my favorite one from the Xerox series. But once again, I mean, I'm a, I can be a really sentimental person that must be also related to this experience. Totally. I also like, I think, this collaboration that he had with the Blixa Bargeld was quite nice. Ah, yes. Yeah. Nice. And, nice. and he also had this collaboration with the French writer that I forgot the name of right now. And James Chaton, is it? Yes, exactly. Yeah. Uh, this is really interesting also, especially because the way this person used the French language actually also is quite, uh, was unknown to me, uh, because it's also really technical, a technical way to use this language. And uh, it's, there's almost no content in what he's saying, it's purely form. Um, it's, there's, there's, I don't know so many people that work in that direction, so I like this album as well. Yeah, it's always funny hearing him work with Aunt James because bringing in someone who I guess is effectively a poet feels completely, on paper it seems like to run against the whole Rastanoton thing until you hear what he's doing and just reading out receipts or three-letter acronyms and suddenly he feels like he's been co-opted into their sort of very binary way of doing things, you know. Yes, exactly. And there's a certain, I mean, those are just uh, data, but there's a certain, I mean, maybe because I tend to listen to things in this way, but there's a, there's a certain poetry that arises from this data. You can, because he's talking about the, the life of a person, this is describing your life, you know, all these data that you get, all these numbers. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, which I guess it's, it's interesting to think about, and I was thinking about this recently as to how relevant that can continue to be, because I think I saw him do a poetry reading when he was talking about someone's payment and transaction history. Uh, mm -hmm. And at that point, that's, you know, a, a data representation of a person the best that we can approximate it. But now yes. I wonder if the boundaries are too fluid for poetry like that. I don't know. Um, I also don't really know. I mean, I think this is definitely something interesting. I mean, as I was saying before, this is not exactly my perspective in the sense that I find that um, this is especially a strong aesthetic position, I think, in uh, sound art or electronic music to have this, um, to use technology as a kind of neutral way of or science as a neutral way of understanding the world and this is something that i don't agree with actually i think this is just a perspective you know right yeah and, uh, and this can be actually problematic when uh when it's considered as something as the ultimate and truest way of seeing the world yeah there's something i've thought about quite a lot actually because it's um you do hear sometimes there are some opinions that are expressed through the backing of science as if that provides them some kind of objective truth um ignoring the you know human element that comes into place emphasis on certain things or certain studies or certain interpretations uh, like you i kind of see there to be a something quite insidious about the expression of opinions in that way mm -hmm. yeah Especially, I think, if we reframe it in the context of uh, uh, electronic music or music that is where you're using a computer, because uh, 
I think a lot of interesting things have been done by people that don't understand exactly the tools they are using, actually. Mm. You can also... I find it even more interesting, in a way, um, to go in that direction. To, to not understand fully the tools that you're dealing with, you mean? Yes, for example, or not uh, not getting into this uh, gear understanding of things. Yeah. Uh, and uh, also because I see that I think these tools are also some, they're also products of our culture, no? So this makes them even more, uh, even more of a perspective. Obviously, you've been working with Max for a while. Is there a... Do you think about maybe there'll be a time where you'll become acquainted with that software to the point where you won't want to use it? Like the terrain will be mapped out for you too much? Is that something you think about? Um, that's possible. But in the same time, I think if I arrive to this point, it's maybe more that I'm trapped in my own, the own structures that I made for you. Because I think I really, it's hard to know 100% of this software. Right, yes. And uh, the, the, I think you could do a lot of a lot of things with it. And uh, I noticed that I already started to form patterns in the way I work with it. So I think if I get stuck at some point, maybe I'm more stuck in my patterns. Right. That's <laughs> why sometimes it's interesting to yeah move from to use different tools, also to try to break these patterns. Or, for example, this is why, as I was saying, sometimes I like to work conceptually. So I set myself a rule to try to avoid myself getting into my pattern. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Again, I guess it comes back to that idea of applying limitations, right, in order to bring something into being like Ligeti did. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, and also, yeah, I mean, as I was saying, also the architecture of the software would definitely tend to, even though the music I do, you could do it in a lot of different other software but uh, the, the the architecture of it influences the fact that you this is the, the solution you came up with so to say yeah um and yeah i mean yeah let's see but i'm i'm open to i'm not a dogmatic person so and i think it could be quite dangerous and it can become a bit boring even if at some point you get too comfortable in uh, one way of doing things Yes. It's good to challenge yourself and always learn. Totally, yes. <laughs> um, in fact, a question just popped into my head about multivocal and, you know, thinking the means by which you're creating this music. Um, the notes on each of the tracks feel so specific and you become so acquainted with that particular cluster of notes throughout listening to it. Mm. Um, and for some reason, to me, it feels like that maybe it would be and you can tell me whether or not this is correct, but like an important thing to choose the correct arrangement of notes to avoid too much of a explicit melodic programming to kind of allow it to have the same ambiguity harmonically as it does rhythmically. I mean, how much planning went into, on each of the pieces, what notes, what pitches that you were placing in relation to each other on each of the pieces? Uh, for one of them, I used the harmonic series of one, I think it was 100 hertz or 110. I don't remember exactly, but yes, definitely. I mean, I, I try to not work with the note of the piano. Uh, right. yeah. Go out of this tuning, 
but still work with some specific, uh, those kind of specific tuning, because I thought, as I was saying before, I'm interested in this tension between what you know and what you don't know. So this kind of alternate tunings are a little bit, they are less common than uh, the usual one you hear in uh, pop music. So it's a way to, how can I say this, to try to make it a little bit foreign, but still keeping a melodic structure in there because i don't really want to go totally atonal or have random notes yes it's nice if you can kind of follow a melody in the same time or oh, this is important for me at least yeah uh not get totally lost yeah certainly it seems to fold quite nicely back into that alvanoto record because you know the the whole premise behind those xerox records is making copies of copies until they get abstracted you know and they're completely far from their source which mm -hmm. sounds like on paper a very technical exercise and something mm -hmm. that could feel incredibly dry but also that presence of melody that he brings to that record creates i mean certainly it's something that feels as much emotionally driven as it is by the technological drive of it you know what i mean exactly and um i mean i don't know the details of oh it shows i think it's he used a lot of samples for this, maybe, or some of them are samples. Yes, But interesting right. that once you hear these samples with some kind of strings and a certain type of chord, then it becomes really, it automatically triggers this response in you where it becomes really emotional. Yes. Uh, um, so I think he's probably also playing a little bit with this, uh, putting it on top of all these other sounds that are a little bit more rough or industrial. Yes. Um, Yes, and one, one thing that I'm trying to work with now is also um, uh, just intonation as well, a little bit. I'm interested in this, so I use a bit of that also in there. Nice. Where, where has the interest in that come from for you? I think it's about, yeah, just learning new things and also trying to uh, explore other type of tunings that are less familiar to my ear. Because I think in some tunings of just intonation, it, sometimes it feels almost uh, dissonant or it would almost make you uncomfortable or it's really vibrating. Yes. I'm thinking more about the... I'm always thinking of myself as a listener, actually, when I compose something and how I felt. So I'm trying to explore those feelings I had when I listened to something. So this is why for just intonation, for example, I mean, some people are really mathematical about it and uh, this is not really my way of doing it I, I could not talk about this in this way the arithmetic behind um i just like the kind of uh, physical sensation it triggers to you once you hit these notes that are resonating with each other or vibrating with each other yeah same here it's like with the microtonal stuff just that sensation in your head or in your body of things rubbing against each other that friction is just so incredibly beautiful so final question on this Alvanoto record. Um, it's difficult because it's kind of a suite of pieces, but is there a piece or a, a, a moment within the record that protrudes out as like a particular favorite or one that has particular resonance with you? Uh, not, no, I don't think I could point at one because for me it's really, in a way it could be the, the different movement of one piece. Right, <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, I like the whole sound world behind it. was really foreign to me at the at the time uh, when I discovered it. Um, and it's really, I mean, it's, uh, it's also one of the 
first record I listened to where it was really explicitly about sound, you know, much more than uh, musical structure because there's not so much rhythm in there. And the, the, the melodic elements also are really minimal. Jessica, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat to me about not only multivocal, but your three important albums as well. This has been great. Once again, thank you so much for the conversation and the invitation also. Not at all. Um, if people want to check out more of your music online, where's the best place for them to be headed? Uh, for now, it's SoundCloud. I have a lot of things there. Hopefully sometime next year there will be some more things released in one way or another. But for now I think it's SoundCloud. And you've got some tour dates as well up on your uh, on your yes. website as well, right? Yes. Actually the best way to hear the music is live. <laughs> so <laughs> people that are in London, they should come to the Eclectic Gig because there's also this quadraphonic aspect that changed the perception of what's going on. I think it gives another understanding fantastic so that's uh, november the 28th at eclectic in london so if anyone's listening i'll get this up online before that date so you have some advance warning but please go and check out jessica's new record and also her live performances as well um okay well jessica thank you once again and to everyone listening i'll see you next time bye-bye